Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach film and English literature at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave to my students in the winter of 2021 in a course on 100 years of horror. We've made it all the way to the 80s to body horror, prosthetic horror, from the film that was billed as the ultimate in alien terror, John Carpenter's The Thing. So last week we were looking at one of the greatest box office smashes of horror history. The greatest, really, if adjusted for inflation, The Exorcist. And this week we're looking at a movie that is considered a classic despite doing terribly at the box office. It wasn't a box office bomb. It didn't lose money, but it didn't really make the money back for the studio. Um, John Carpenter's The Thing is our topic this week, and we've arrived at the 1980s. Uh, this is a period of technological innovation uh, that drives horror. It's, it's certainly the period of the slasher, but we're going to be talking about the slasher next week in the 90s with Wes Craven's Scream. So this week I wanted to take a look at the thing first and foremost because I'm just going to get this right out there. It's my favorite. I love the thing. It 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 is in my top 10 movies of all time, never mind my top 10 horror movies of all time. It's probably my favorite horror film that likely has as much to do with nostalgia as it does with any form of like serious analysis. Um interestingly, from Julian Hainich's point of view, this is not the ultimate in alien terror. We don't actually get any terror. In this film, there is no point at which Julian Hainich's concept of terror, where, you know, you can see the monster chasing someone uh, and it's coming towards you and you kind of have that sense of like, run away, run away. We never really get that with the thing. At least I don't think we do. Uh, you, you can always argue, you know, you can, you can push back. I always like it when, when people push back. And uh, so long as it's a good pushback and it's not just a let's argue with the teacher sort of thing. John Carpenter was a darling in uh, in film at this time. Um, he had had huge success with Halloween, the movie that arguably kicked off the slasher craze of the 1980s, uh, established him as a filmmaker who could do a lot more with a lot less because that was a very low-budget film and it had huge financial returns. And he made some other films in between Halloween and The Thing, namely Escape from New York and a television movie about the life of Elvis, and both of them starred Kurt Russell, uh, who also appears in The Thing. So the studio felt like he was he was immensely bankable. And um, they also felt like they could put a lot of money into this movie because of the success of Ridley Scott's Alien. And both Halloween and Alien are landmarks, benchmarks in the history of horror. It's why I think that the 1970s is one of the greatest decades, if not the greatest decade of horror cinema yet. Um, and it will, it will be, you know, it may turn out that the, that the, that the 2010s will be contenders for that because I think we saw some amazing work in horror in the last decade. Um, but it's difficult to know, you know, they say hindsight is 2020, but you got to get a ways away from it. You know, it's got to be, you've got to have a bit of distance to really see. And looking back at the seventies, we've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, if you want to include it last house on the left, I mean, I certainly do. I wouldn't want to watch it again, but it's there. Um, we've got the exorcist, 
We've got Halloween, we've got Alien. And interestingly, Halloween and Alien, and to some degree The Thing, all follow that uh, that 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 progression of um, a monster knocking the cast off one by one. Not so much in Halloween as uh, we we get in in Alien, but um, there is a there is a way in which Alien and Halloween have some crossover with uh, Final Girl concepts, uh, which are now I wouldn't want to say in full bloom, but they're there and they're there to stay. They're not just in the sort of infancy that we saw with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where it was someone survived, but they didn't bump the creature off. Post-Alien, we've had Sigourney Weaver, uh, you know, kill the alien off at the end of the film. And then we get to the thing, and it's nothing but men. Uh, all men. And there are good reasons, I think, for why uh, the thing, you know, that the, the carpenter made that decision. Um, but uh, it was certainly an outlier in film at the time. But uh, if we want to explore why the thing did terribly at the box office, like, you know, we've got this buildup that John Carpenter's done Halloween and it did really well at the box office. He did Escape from New York and it did really well at the box office. And then he's given his first really big budget. This was like a huge budget for him to work with. The money that he had with the thing was was definitely a big budget movie. And as I said, it did not do well. Uh, it took, cost about $15 million to make. It made 19.6 at the box office. That's just not the sort of return um, that uh, a film company wants to see. They want to see the kind of returns that E.T., the extraterrestrial, got. Steven Spielberg's E.T., the extraterrestrial. So the thing was beaten out by another alien, really. Um, and, and what this demonstrates, you see this in almost every study or artic- sometimes articles about um, the thing. John Carpenter talks about it in interviews. But the same year that the thing was released, out comes this tale of a little alien and the boy who finds him and their heartwarming adventures together, right? Um, his adventure on Earth. You look at you look at the paratext for these in the posters, right? Uh, the original paratext for the thing on its poster was, uh, man is the warmest place to hide. <laughs> um, the ultimate in alien terror. Trying to capitalize off of the popularity of Ridley Scott's Alien. And then we look at the, the text on the poster for, for, for E.T. His adventure on Earth, right? Not his reign of terror. Or uh, he is afraid. The alien's afraid. Well, if the alien's afraid, he can't be terribly terrifying. Although my wife was absolutely terrified. And I know other people who found E.T. just super scary because there is the moment near the beginning of these moments near the beginning of the film that sort of work within a within the horror genre, um, borrowing from it, but not staying there. Certainly he is totally alone. He is three million light years from home, 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 right? E.T. wants to go home. The thing well, it can make home inside of you. And that just wasn't where the 80s were at. There was a sense of uh, optimism in the 1980s. And there are lots of reasons for that, reasons I don't want to get into right now, but it had <laughs> had something to do, a little bit to do with who was in the White House at the time and just sort of like, let's not really pay attention to the fact that we can all blow ourselves to smithereens with the nuclear bombs or the fact that I'm interested in doing that. But there was this this sense of optimism in North America at the very least. I remember, you know, as I growing up in the 1980s, there was this weird bifurcation between uh, nuclear holocaust and, you know, um, 
Duran Duran, I guess, or Wham, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go, and all the pastels and the neon colors and everything. It was a, it was a bright and shiny time, and E.T. matches that ethos in a way that the thing just doesn't. Um, Ann Bilson, in her absolutely fabulous, I think it's actually, to, to date, this is probably the best BFI Film Classics book I've read. Um, I haven't read them all, but of, of the horror ones especially... Ann Bilson's The Thing is just outstanding. It was released in the late 90s, I think 1997. I will never forget running into this in the library at the University of Alberta where I did my uh, graduate work. Um, and it was at the point where I was I was making a shift from doing religious studies. And, and I actually think this might have been one of the reasons why this happened. I was up in the, lo- in, in the Rutherford Library at the University of Alberta wandering around in the stacks, all these shelves with books. Uh, uh, when we call them, when we say the stacks, we just mean a hell of a lot of books and a hell of a lot of shelves. And I came around the corner uh, to a section where I could see this was all film. And I was like, oh my gosh, you can study film like this? I had no idea. I had no idea. And uh, I started, you know, just looking at the titles of the books. And this tiny little spine looked at me and said, look, it's the thing. And took it out. It had nothing to do with anything I was working on at the time. I did not need to be reading it, and I read it anyway. And I devoured it. I loved it so much uh, that I went and looked to see if I could get a copy. It was out of print at the time. Uh, And I'm really sorry, I photocopied the whole thing until I could get the reprinted version of it. So uh, fantastic, fantastic uh, little book. But um, in uh, Ann Bilson's The Thing, she talks about this This interplay between, you know, the optimistic 1980s, the downbeat nature of the thing, and says that really ultimately the thing, even though, as she says, there's this fuzziness about what we'd really call the end of the 70s. Star Wars is really an 80s movie, but it's in, it's made in 1977. And The Thing is sort of a 70s movie. It's got the same um, pessimism, the same d- mistrust of authority, the same sense of like anti-heroes and will they all make it or will they all die at the end of the film that was that was pervasive in the 1970s um and it, it it's you know it's an early 80s movie. It's made in nine, well it's released in 1982. So uh, there, the big reason that you hear over and over again that the thing failed at the box office was E.T. And, and Bilson says that's emblematic of its attitudes and that it, it wasn't catching the zeitgeist of the average moviegoer, we might say. She also talks about uh, the critical response to the film, which was awful. Critics hated this movie and had all sorts of legit invective for it. And then strangely, so you might say, well, what's it doing in a course on 100 Years of Horror if it's such a bomb? I mean, it wasn't a box office bomb, but clearly not a darling. Why is it in a course like this? Is it just because you liked it? Yes, as it turns out. Um, Whatever I represent in terms of what age I was at and what I was into, um, it was in the video rental cable TV uh, space of you know what film was becoming in those days because film was no longer just about going to the actual movie as it had been for so very long or hoping that you'd be able to catch this film on late night tv and let's face it um if you've seen the thing you'd know that 
putting it on late night TV uh, would result in heavy, heavy censoring. And Jez Connolly, in his Devil's Advocate book on the thing, talks about how ridiculous uh, some of the dialogue became uh, when it was released to, you know, sort of regular um, television, late night television. But now we've got the advent of the VCR. And so people don't just see movies at the theater. They watch them on their home theater system. And we didn't really call them home theater systems back then because it was just this, it was a box on top of your TV, which was still relatively small in terms of screen. Uh, there was, we were seeing the, the advent of, of projection screens. They were kind of clunky. They were grainy. Um, and, and besides which the, the VHS tapes or watching it on cable usually resulted in seeing it in what was called pan and scan mode. Pan and scan mode took something like the things widescreen anamorphic ratio, uh, and, and, and reduced it to the television's box. And so they would have this way that the, the they could shift within the frame. And that's why they called it pan and scan. They scanned the movie in, but they'd also pan within the frame. So what we saw of the thing in the 1980s wasn't the whole thing. Um, but what we saw, those of us who were my age, people a little bit older, maybe couldn't see it in the theaters, or just didn't get a chance because it, it wasn't a big, bo- big enough box office smash to stick around long enough for you to go it had a renaissance through home video and through uh, cable services like Super Channel. Um, HBO was another one of those, those cable services. But in Canada, we had Super Channel. And Super Channel, every now and again, would do these free weekends. And I remember seeing that The Thing was one of the movies that was going to be on this free weekend. And I was like, here we go. <laughs> I am taping that because I'd already rented it several times. I mean, I saw this movie when I was like around 12 years old because I snuck it somehow past my dad. I was like, dad, can we can we rent this? And he's like, what is it? I'm like, it's a movie where, you know, like Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell. Uh, and for my dad's generation, Kurt Russell was a Disney kid. He was he like played teen heroes in in Disney movies, so it'd almost be like going. Uh, this isn't even going to make as much sense as it should. Um, Zach Efron, I guess you'd be like Zach Efron's in it, and it's it's a horror movie. Um, so you know he's like sure, and I watched it by myself, and I loved it, and it scared me. It didn't give me nightmares or anything like that, but I I absolutely loved it, and I absolutely loved its ending. Um, enough fanboying. That's going to happen a lot, I got to tell you today. So if you've been like, you know, you've been very scholarly so far, this feels weird. Well, buckle up, because I'm not sure I can contain myself when it comes to the thing. Um, <laughs> that feels like a metaphor, like I'm just going to burst out. Something's going to burst out of me. Um, but the, 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 the movie itself is based on a novella by, the, uh, by uh, John W. Campbell, who was the editor for Astounding Science Fiction. And he's considered one of the great grandfathers or fathers of modern, of, of science fiction. This was one of the guys who like worked with people like Asimov, Isaac Asimov. And he, uh, Isaac Asimov says, oh, you know, um, Campbell was responsible for the three laws of robotics. And Campbell was like, no, it was really, it's really Asimov. And we don't know, but clearly there was some sort of a partnership there, sort of John Carpenter and Kurt Russell kind of partnership where they worked this stuff out. But he was, he was one of the greats and not everything about him was great. Incidentally, uh, he once told um, Samuel Delaney, uh, who um, was a or uh, is a uh, writer of of fantasy and science fiction, black, um, queer, and uh, he had a story where there was a black protagonist and Campbell said, no, nobody's going to buy that. 
And that's one of the things I love about the thing is that, as we'll see uh, at the end of the movie, it's not the black guy who dies first. It's, in fact, the black guy who's still sitting there at the end of the movie. Um, just as a side note, this is something that I've talked about with my students in person. Um, that idea that the black guy always dies first is pure comedian construction. Um, there, there are certainly movies where that happens, um, but there aren't as many as that whole concept would suggest. And the thing is certainly antithetical to that because uh, both of the black characters in this film make it nearly to the very end. And they're, 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 they're coded in very, very positive ways. They're coded as being capable. Uh, certainly Keith David's character, Childs, is as physically capable and mentally capable as Kurt Russell's McCready, really. I mean, those two are like, pillars they're like they're like poles in in the in the in the film um but campbell had written this novella in astounding science fiction way back in 1938 which was uh sort of the the beginning it was one of the last stories he ever published and it was uh, under a pseudonym his he did a pseudonym of his wife's name donna stewart and don a stewart oh so clever um to get the story into the magazine without it seeming like, oh, I'm the editor and I just put in stories that I write. Uh, but it, it's considered a classic of prose science fiction. Um, the writing's not great. It's very pulpy. It's 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 incredibly pulp era. Um, but uh, it it did very well. And this was this was right at the outset of the golden age of science fiction. So it's sort of considered part of the golden age of science fiction. And then it got made into a movie uh, by Howard Hawks, who was a great director in his time. This is one of those movies that I was talking about back from the 1950s, where I said that uh, a lot, um, a lot of the science fiction in America in the 1950s was, sorry, I said all of the science fiction, much of the horror of the 1950s was science fiction horror. And the thing from another world was one of those. And it was one of John Carpenter's favorite movies. And, but he didn't want to do what that movie had done with the monster, which was basically make a vegetable version of the Frankenstein monster played by James Arness, this really incredibly tall actor who would go on to be, uh, to greater fame as the, uh, as Marshall Dillon, uh, in the television series, longstanding television series, Gunsmoke. Um, so James Arness was one of my heroes growing up. So it was always interesting to me that he also played one of my favorite monsters in its first iteration, um, a filmic iteration, iteration anyway. But it was, it was really, I mean, once the monster was revealed in the thing from another world, you're just like, okay, this is like a version of Frankenstein, really. I mean, that's, that's what we're seeing here. Uh, but it was given this new spin. It was given this uh, alien invasion spin. And it's a good movie. For, for the 1950s, it absolutely holds up. When I watch it, I, I think it's enjoyable. Uh, it certainly has a sense of tension to it. Um, but the it creeps, it crawls concept from the posters no, it doesn't. It lumbers and it moves, but it doesn't creep and it, it doesn't crawl. The original monster from um, Campbell's novella creeped and crawled. It became other people. So that was the concept that John Carpenter wanted to return to when they were working on the thing. Um, but he still borrowed from Hawks. There are a number of, of film moments that uh, Carpenter, you know, make. He's he's making homages to Hawks's film version, like the opening uh, title credit where the, the it's all blackness and then it burns away and we get these white letters with light shining through. That's the same 
title effect as uh, Hawks is the Thing. And apparently it was done by putting um, black garbage bag material, black, black plastic, over a basically a, a cutout, like a, um, a, fr- a framing of those letters, and then light was shone through, and then they just lit the they lit the uh, garbage bag on fire, and they had to do a bunch of takes of it to get it right. But it's a really, really, really great effect. Uh, yet it was done super simply. But again, it's an homage to that film. And I think that there's also an homage in the shape of the spacecraft, which, I mean, this is post-Star Wars. This is post-Alien. We can make cooler-looking sp- spacecraft now. So why would John Carpenter start a movie like this, which is going to have a monster that doesn't follow um, conventional form? Why would he go with a conventional-looking flying saucer? I think it's mainly because he wanted to have the shot of the Norwegians standing around the uh, the impact crater or the space that the the ship is buried in, because that shot looks an awful lot like the shot in Hawks's uh, The Thing from Another World, where everyone stands in a circle and then the camera <laughs> zooms out until it shows us that, oh my God, it's a circle. And we have to remember that flying saucers were a genuine scare in the 1950s in a way that like today, you know, it's like, it's a circle. We'd be like, okay, like, is this Sesame street? Um, but, uh, John Carpenter makes this homage in the videotapes that they find in the film that tell us what has happened before, right? What, what happened with, to the first camp that the, that the thing encountered on earth, the Norwegian camp, the film itself getting away from like what they were trying, you know, the, the, the pedigree of this movie is absolutely gorgeous. And as I said, my, my first experience of this uh, film was on home video, grainy V grainy beta tape, really, uh, which was better than VHS, but still not, you know, DVD. Um, when I got a DVD, it was a revelation to watch, but watching it on the big screen at uh, one of the repertoire cinemas here in Edmonton, went to see it at the Metro cinema and it was in it was shown in digital the the picture was incredible the picture was absolutely gorgeous uh dean cundy the cinematographer for this film who worked with carpenter on a number of other movies as well um does a fabulous job with this huge panoramic vision of this frozen wasteland supposed to be antarctic uh, but is actually a mix of alaska and northern british columbia and the opening sequences are from Alaska. And they are, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful filming. To watch it in high-def digital is to see that, to see, you know, just gorgeous, gorgeous film. But um, whenever I make these, uh, the video for this, for these lectures, um, I have to figure out where to put my, my own face. Where do I put my head so that you can see me talking and emoting and stuff. So it's not just slides. Um, I don't know if that's interesting or not, but that's what I do. And, uh, and I'll tell you with the thing, it was, it, it's, it was a challenge as I went through the rehearsal of this to figure out where I would sit me in this great big panoramic shot. Now, you know, there are shots certainly where, you know, I could put myself and I would just be overlaying great vistas of snow. But for most of this film, Dean Cundy and John Carpenter are going to fill the frame. We have to remember that that this ratio was still an option and that none of the films that we've looked at work with this ratio, this particular full anamorphic widescreen ratio. This is 
super, super big. And when this format first came in, um, there were directors who said, I don't want to, I don't want to use it because it doesn't focus the audience's attention as well as tighter ratios. The ones that, you know, aren't as wide, uh, we can focus their attention better as ostensibly with a box. But Carpenter does focus our attention. Kundi does focus our attention throughout the thing. And, and that's seen not only in these, these, like the Vista is important. Like, this isn't just like, let's show you some of Alaska because we were up there and we thought we'd show you the beauty of that landscape. It's because we need to know how absolutely desolate and empty this space is as set up for the narrative. Speaking of setups for the narrative, what's this helicopter chasing? A dog, uh, you know, a husky, a sled dog. And it keeps looking back at the helicopter and that's a little bizarre. And the thing, as with any of the movies in this series, is one of those films that has so much um, lore, I guess, around it. People sort of know the story, even if they've never seen it, that perhaps the, the, uh, the, the surprise of what's going on with the dog has been spoiled. And if you've never seen the thing, I want you just to shut this off right now. Go away and go watch it, please. Okay? Um, now that they've gone away, we can carry on talking and I can just give spoilers galore. I, I, re I recognize that the rule about spoilers is, is, you know, kind of moot with the thing. It's old enough that it doesn't really hold. But as I've said, this is one of my favorite movies and I wouldn't want to wreck it for anyone. Um, so we've got this dog and, you know, we don't know what's up with it. It's got a sort of preternatural, uh, bizarre intelligence to it. You know, why doesn't it just keep running? Why does it occasionally turn around and look back at the, the helicopter? That's something bizarre. And then the film cuts away from this chase, away from this helicopter chasing this dog and shooting at it. And we have no sense of what's going on there. There's no dialogue to fill it in. There's no exposition, no voiceover. Mystery, mystery, mystery. You don't know what's going on. And then we come to the, the Antarctic base where all of the action is going to occur. An actual set, and this is one of the things that I think is, is amazing about this picture, all the way back to Nosferatu, going on location to shoot the exterior shots, to take the time to find a space. It was on a glacier in northern British Columbia. So there, too, I think we're just seeing the, the, the amazing nature of editing that, you know, you can film a bunch of stuff up in Alaska, and then you can film a bunch of stuff in northern British Columbia, and then you can film a bunch of stuff on a studio lot in California, and you can cut all of that together, and it feels like it's together. I'm going to show you how they, how they do that in just a second. But um, this base with its huge icicles along the sides of the buildings for a, for a kid growing up in Canada, w you know, we know the difference in Canada between fake snow and real snow. Home alone, fake snow. The thing, real snow. You know, if snow is generated by a snowmaker, we can tell. But a Canadian looks at this and goes, whoa, they were really somewhere exceedingly cold that that is actually a place of you know ridiculous uh temperature drop and everything that we see in this film in terms of mise-en-scene when we have exterior shots the costuming the the, the ice the snow on the sets that's all real that's all them going, it's so damn cold out there, we actually have to wear these goggles right now, or we have to wear all this snow gear, because we really can't be out in these temperatures without it. Um, and there's some wonderful stories if you, if you get a chance to uh, watch the uh, sort of commentary track 
there's also on, on the Blu-ray, there's a frame within the frame thing where the, the actors and the producers talk about uh, the experience of being up north and what that was like. And there's some really interesting stuff going on there. Uh, but we get inside. Here we have a studio shot. And this, again, is one of these, these moments where Carpenter fills the screen and Dean Cundy gets everybody in the shot. Uh, right now we've got six out of the uh, 12 characters. And by the way, uh, Bill Lans Lancaster, who wrote the screenplay for the thing, reduced the 37 characters of Campbell's novella to 12 characters. But 12 characters is still an awful lot of people to have to deal with, even if the film is going to be claustrophobic. And yet, they all have a physicality that sets them apart, and when they're in a shot all together... They are arranged in such a way that it still feels natural. It doesn't feel contrived. Um, and yet there are you know, a number of shots where almost everyone is in the frame, or everyone is in the frame, everyone who's left anyway. But we get six of the group at this point, and they're just doing regular stuff. And this sets up the type of people who are the heroes of this film. They are regular Joes. And this goes hand in hand with um, Thomas Sipos' idea that uh, horror should involve an unnatural threat that comes against vulnerable victims. And we can see a vulnerability to these victims. As Anne Bilson has said in her BFI Film Classics book about this cast, with the exception of Keith David and Kurt Russell, uh, these, these actors are overweight, underweight, and their characters are out of condition, or we might say out of commission, or just plain out of it. I mean, we've got stoners, uh, we've got, you know, people who are just clearly trying to get away from the world. Um, and Kurt Russell's character of MacReady is one of those. Uh, there's, I've had people say that they didn't, they, they were like, oh, we knew that Kurt Russell would make it to the end of the film because he's Kurt Russell. And that can really only be said in hindsight, post- Kurt Russell's career as an action hero, you know, post-Tango and Cash, post-Stargate, uh, um, post-The Soldier, post a whole bunch of movies where Kurt Russell is cool and tough and all these sorts of things. But he still really wasn't that person at this point. Like, he played Snake Plissken in Escape from New York, where he effectively was just playing himself as Clint Eastwood. Um, and then he played Elvis, and then he's in the thing. Prior to that, he's the Disney kid. So while the film clearly shows us that he is more or less the protagonist here, like if we're going to choose a, a, a protagonist for this film, it's probably going to be McCready. But to say that we, you know, in 1982, did we all think that Kurt Russell would make it out? I know that in my first viewing, I didn't think so. I knew enough about John Carpenter's films to know that there was a really, really good chance that he 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 was he was as likely to bite it as anyone else was and and you know remember uh horror film is all about subverting those expectations so maybe john carpenter was going to play with the audience in the same way that alfred hitchcock had in psycho but kurt russell just wasn't that guy at this point so mccready despite being a loner despite being clearly our our protagonist despite despite being capable and sort of a, a, a capable action figure is still as vulnerable as the rest he's not he's probably an alcoholic um he's got his issues he's humanly tired later in the film in ways that don't show him as being sort of bruce willis in die hard so um i i i have to reject that uh, that reading that that is a post kurt russell's um, action career. It's a little bit like seeing 
um, Lawrence Fishburne in Othello <laughs> after you've seen The Matrix. And Othello was released in uh, the cinematic version with Kenneth Branagh was released um, before uh, Lawrence Fishburne was Morpheus in The Matrix. Well, after you've seen Lawrence Fishburne cut an SUV in half, you watch Othello with very, very different eyes. And when he, when he, when he gets all badass and says that he's going to like, you know, he, it, there's this almost fight scene in Othello and he says, put up your swords or the dew will rust them, which is basically saying, I'm going to kill you all. Uh, we get, it's more badass coming from Lawrence Fishburne if you've seen him as Morpheus. And so when we look at Kurt Russell through the lens of a career of action films, yeah, we were like, okay, I know this guy, this guy's not actually vulnerable, you know, so Sipos's thing doesn't work. But for the original viewers and for anyone who can be that sympathetic viewer, right, that one that goes, okay, I'm just going to let this film be what it is. Um, I, I think he's still just as much in every, in every man as, as he needed to be for the original, uh, the original intents of the film. The helicopter that is chasing the, um, the dog does this quick move. And this shot... Uh, with a with a w blue barrel in the foreground is shot in Alaska. And the very next shot, which shows a blue barrel in the foreground, uh, showing the dog in the distance and the, the helicopter banking around in another direction is on the glacier in northern British Columbia. And this is how a film can be edited. And these little tricks, a simple little trick, all they had to do was put a blue barrel out in the middle of this big wasteland in Alaska, and then they put a similar or even the same blue barrel in the foreground of the next shot, in, uh, you know, that is, that is shot in, on, on this glacier, and the audience buys that this moment is sandwiched together. Great moment of editing. Um, and, and again, we get another one of these shots um, that, uh, that establishes who all the characters are. We've had six of them on the inside. One of those six is in this shot that gives us four more in their outerwear, in this clo cold clothing as they, you know, are figuring out like what the heck's going on. There's this amusement. Again, physicality is different enough that we don't have too much difficulty separating who's who. Whoever these Norwegians are, they're desperate enough to kill this dog that they're willing to use explosives, but something goes wrong with a grenade. The helicopter gets blown up. This is another editing moment. Um, that's the helicopter that gets used through the rest of the film. The helicopter that was just flying is also the helicopter that McCready will fly later in the film. And it's a testament to how films get made that the planning of these things is so well done that they can, they can uh, orchestrate this sort of thing. Um, we get another one of the characters introduced, uh, Bill Mazur as Clark, uh, coming out and soothing the dog and touching it, right? Um, and we still don't know what's up with this dog, but I mean, you know, generally, as uh, Ann Bilson says, dogs in film are usually good luck, but there's this eerie calmness to the dog, and it's going to be accentuated in upcoming shots. But we're still being introduced to the cast that, you know, we're... we're I think as, as most audiences don't want the dog to die, right? They're, so we're, 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 we're hoping for them to stop these crazy Norwegians and then we'll find out what's really been going on, you know, and maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the dog. And then we get another one of those great shots that shows, you know, the whole cast standing there, except for uh, the guy who plays Clark, looking at the smoking ruins of the helicopter. And McCready says, first goddamn week of winter. And this establishes so much about this film. Uh, this the, the cast has been established, but that that 
laconic vernacular every day first goddamn week of winter um it's not poetry as ann bilson says this is how we would expect i think normal people in a situation like this to react and the statement the first goddamn week of winter tells us that this icy wasteland that we're seeing isn't going to get warmer it's going to get colder and that potentially if we're if we know anything about this and we'll and if we pay attention to the narrative we're going to be told this uh these characters are going to be cut off that they will be unable to rely on anyone else once the shit hits the fan what the thing operates with from julian hainich's types of terror is dread there's a lot of dread in the first 30 minutes it's not this it, it's a slow build it's not the slow build of the exorcist by by any measure but it is still a slow build for a movie that says it's going to be the ultimate in alien terror it takes quite a while before we actually get to meet the alien and that dread that quiet anticipatory type of cinematic fear it just creeps up on us we aren't sure where the threat is coming from we suspect it might be the dog but we're not 100% sure. We don't know what's going on. And even if we suspect that the dog is somehow involved, audiences in 1982 were absolutely unprepared for, for, for what would become the, the moment of cinematic shock. That dread continues to be spooled out in a masterful sequence, which would get um, reiterated in some way in, oh, and has been in, in, in many films, uh, an episode of The X-Files, um, this, this visit to the Norwegian camp where Doc Copper and McCready head over and we get to see the gutted remains of the Norwegian camp. Now, incidentally, like that helicopter, this is the set for, um, the earlier, the earlier, uh, for, for the, the, um, the, the, the American base. And uh, we're just seeing it now completely ruined, smashed up. So it, it does double duty. Uh, even on a large budget picture, John Carpenter is still working in a low budget way at certain points, saving money. But it's it's a really cool sequence because it works with that sort of expressionist lighting where we've got really, really deep darks and some really, really bright whites. We can't totally see what's going on here, um, which is in stark contrast to how most of the sequences involving the thing will be lit, brightly lit, ridiculously brightly lit. We're not hiding any of this. One of the things that John Carpenter was interested in was in showing the monster. We'll, we'll get to that shortly but we get that intensification of dread at the norwegian camp because there's the sense this sort of sense of destiny i guess um that what is happening now has happened before and is about to happen again what happened here you know what the hell happened here that question we ask it but we have this sense of knowing that we're about to see what has occurred in the american edit of the original godzilla movie the first shot of the film is of the devastation that godzilla has caused and despite many other cuts that make that film far lesser than the, than the original japanese film um i've always thought that was a really really good move because what it does is it says we're going to show you the effect before we give you the cause and it's that sense of suspense that Alfred Hitchcock talked about. If you show the audience that there's a bomb underneath the table, it's suspense. If you just set the bomb off, it's surprise. Interestingly, Carpenter gets both because even though the audience goes, okay, we know something bad is coming. They had never seen the kind of bad this movie was going to show them. The shot of McCready 
with the great big block of ice is another homage to the Hawks film. Uh, the creature in that film was found in a great big block of ice and same same kind of structure as the one that we find here. This is such a great shot, though, because the camera moves towards him. And we like when we can't see what's on on the screen, we're almost always kind of doing this thing like, hey, can you know, can I see in there? Uh, and we want to see inside. Is there something in there? No. In the end, all it turns out is that it's just great big block of ice that the Norwegians dug up. But the thing that was in there isn't in there anymore so where is it you know what's where, where do we where do we find it and we might think we found it we sort of have um out in those ruined uh burnt remains that uh copper and um macready see and love copper's line in this sequence where you know is that a, is that a man in there or something um over and over again this film is going what am i looking at what is it that I'm seeing here? Uh, the special effects um, director, creator, person in charge of special effects for this movie, Rob Bottin, did masterful work along with a comics artist named Mike Plug uh, to create creature designs unlike any that had ever been seen before on screen. They'd been seen before in EC Comics, and once again, EC Comics rears its head. EC Comics inspired Night of the Living Dead, inspired some of the stuff in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. EC Comics comes back at us again for the thing. Uh, so when we're thinking about antecedents for horror in this period, EC Comics just shows up over and over and over again. But there's something there in those burnt remains. And of course, they pick it up and they take it with them because, you know... As, uh, you know, and Bilson talks about this, but many other films talk, or not films, but studies talk about this. We talk about this as when we're just having fun talking about horror movies. Um, you know, why would they do something stupid like that? You know, and even my students say like, oh, I just didn't like how stupid they were in this particular scene. And I'm like, stupidity is essential. This is C-Posts all over again. You have to have vulnerable victims for the unnatural threat to attack. And again, we've got that build of unnatural... Uh, of, of dread as what turns out to be the unnatural threat that dog is watching them land with the helicopter but i remember when i watched this the first time i thought that dog is scared because it knows that they've picked up the thing they found the thing now and this is john carpenter at his at his most masterful in this film always go and look over here look over here look over here and then he punches you in the face with the other <laughs> with the other hand look over here look over here wham right um and, and that's what he's doing. He's like, okay, now that I've shown you this creepy body that was in the snow, I'm going to show you this creepy body a little more close up. And I'm going to get you to stop thinking about that dog for a little while. And the sequence where, again, this is one of those great shots where so much of the cast in one room, uh, they uncover the body and the steam rises off of it. The reason they're all making gagging noises and choking isn't just because they're good performers, although many of them are great performers. Uh, it's because the stuff that they had to use to make the smoke rise off of the prosthetic uh, sculpture, this this uh, foam latex sculpture, um, was it just reeked. It absolutely reeked. Uh, so some of it is just genuine, oh God, you know, like that smell. Um, but we get, we, we, even though the camera gets right close up, and by the way, that's one of the other things that's great about what Carpenter and Cundy do throughout this film is that we get these establishing shots, medium shots, wide shots to show us the base, to show us an entire room of people. And then it switches to these really great close ups that fill this, this widescreen, widescreen frame 
and we get right up close with this sculpture covered in all sorts of goo. I mean, they used everything that they could, they could think of to make the goo in this film. Apparently there were buckets, buckets of KY jelly. Um, and I don't remember who said it, but they said, I didn't even know you could order KY in buckets, but apparently you can, and then you can slather it all over your monsters, uh, for your movie. Um, but they used all, all sorts of crazy stuff to achieve the goo in this movie, including chewing gum, apparently, uh, whatever was at hand that would do the job, but we get right up close and we still don't know what we're looking at. So what is, what, what kind of horror is that when I'm looking right at it? That's direct horror, isn't it? But I still don't know what I'm looking at. So what is that? What is direct horror if I can't really tell what it is that I'm seeing, right? And Wilford Brimley is so good. Now, you should know, if you didn't know, that this was a guy who sold Quaker Oats on TV for most of the 80s. Like, he was known as the Quaker Oats guy. And here he is in the thing doing these wonderful dissection scenes. And I think he's absolutely fabulous in his role. He just takes it so incredibly seriously. And he sells that at that point. But, you know, appears to be human, that wonderful line appears to be human. But then I, I think back to that monstrous sculpture that we saw, that, that, that twisted, con this twisted uh, arrangement of limbs. <clears throat> How many arms does this thing have? What's going on with its face? Appears to be human. But, it, but it's not. Back to the dog. And now we get some more what editing can do for you. And I, I like to keep bringing this stuff up because... There are other people who have already dealt with the special effects of, of films like The Thing at great length. And I don't necessarily need to go and repeat the work that they've done. But I love to see how special effects are bolstered by editing. Um, how, you know, you can take a shot of a real dog, the real part wolf husky that uh, was the trained animal on the set, walking into the kennel, and then cutting to a fake dog. And that this this fake dog's fakery is bolstered by low lighting, by the use of that sort of semi-expressionist uh, noir, really deep shadows, really bright lights, lighting to cover up the fact that the fur didn't look all that real. But you cut from a real dog to a fake dog, and then, you know, you cut back to the real dog, the audience is buying the fake dog. So that when you finally go to the fake dog's face splitting open, and that's a different fake dog at that point, that's this animatronic puppet where they could split the face open. But once you've done that, you've established the dog as a character. And it's the same thing that happened with Linda Blair and her body double and the puppet. If you cut between those three things and you keep coming back to the real thing enough, the audience buys it. And I use the, the dog's face splitting open because that was, that was where prosthetic... Uh, horror, called body horror. You get this term body horror, but I, I, I like to talk about the prosthetic special effects because, you know, this is what we're working with. Foam latex, um, animatronics to create the illusion of a real thing going through some form of transportation. They had all these little air sacs inside of the uh, puppets and they were able to you know, make the, the, the shape of the head change. Um, but prior to this film, it was werewolves that we'd really seen this sort of effects work uh, with in uh, The Howling, which Rob Bottin had worked on, um, was one of the reasons that he was considered for working on the thing. It was like, you know, here's my resume. I did that movie where there was that werewolf transformation. And then, of course, American Werewolf in London. And these were hailed, and they continue to be hailed, as benchmarks and special effects. But <clears throat> what they did that the thing 
arguably doesn't do, and some people might contest this, but I would challenge you and say, you got to go watch, got to go watch The Howling, watch American Werewolf in London, see how long their special effects sequences take and what they do to the pacing of the film. And this is something that Jez Connolly talks about in his Devil's Advocates book for The Thing, that there's, there's, you know, the special effects sequences in a lot of movies that involved um, prosthetic special effects, these body horror special effects, would they would break the pacing of the film and go, let's watch this happen for a while. Because, you know, we paid all this money for these great special effects. Now let's watch it happen. And Connolly argues that the thing doesn't do this, that the thing puts its um, special effects set pieces right in the action. And yes, we get to see them and we, we watch, but as the camera cuts back to the, the cast, they have this look of shocked horror on their face whenever this stuff goes down. They can't believe what's happening. So we don't get the same sense as we do, say, in The Howling when there's this transformation where this guy turns into a werewolf and there's this woman who's there and she's being threatened by him. She's got lots of time to run away, but she's, she stays there in horror. Of course she does, because it's a horror movie and we want to see the werewolf transformation. But I think Connolly makes a really good point point that the thing just keeps the story going and sure we get some great uh, moments to f to to look at the prosthetic special effects the horror special effects that are going on we get direct horror here we see the threatening violent event or monstrous object in full vision direct as possible uh the the dog thing by the way was developed but not by rob botin but by stan winston who didn't want credit for it because he said it's botin's film and i just came to piggyback for a couple seconds, because um, Botin had a breakdown on the set because he was working such long hours. But we get, you know, this dog thing. The trouble is, is that you look at this, this, this thing. I love the title of this movie, right? The Thing. Why do you call it The Thing? Because I have no ripping clue what I'm looking at. And there was actually a, a, a film critic who noted that the monster had no form and that, that was one of the things for them that detracted from the film. They're like, it never really has any form. That's the whole point. And that, that's what bugs me so much about film criticism, where they identify what's going on, but, that's, but then seem incapable of analyzing it from that moment. And when I think about, like, why was the thing so horrifying? Why did it, why did it creep people like me out? I think it's because there's, you know, we don't get a, a form and you keep looking at it and going, what is it, what is it that I'm seeing? And every time the camera comes back to it, it's not just next stage. Now my face is pushing out special effect or like my eyes are bubbling or something like that. It's something completely new. Head splits open, tongue comes out, spits at one of the dogs, tendrils grow, you know, start taking flesh off the other dogs. Every time the camera comes back, this thing has made some form of ridiculous evolutionary leap forward. So sure, it's direct horror. We're absolutely seeing something gross, but now, now we come back and there's eyeballs on the side of the dog thing. Where did the eyeballs come from? And then the plant sort of looking flower thing shoots out at you. And finally, somebody goes, torch it, right? The sequence is arguably as long as any other transformation sequence in cinema from this time, but it is so much more dynamic and it keeps the movie rolling along as a result. And Bilson at one point says, we're almost sad when the monster, she was anyway, <laughs> it was probably people who are like, I was not sad. Um, we're, we're, you know, when they finally torch the creatures, because we're kind of interested in going, well, what would it have become next? You know, what, what was the next transformation moment going to be? And even when the camera gets a look at whatever the hell this thing is, when again, Wilford Brimley, um, 
playing Blair gets to do another one of his great autopsies. And apparently he just loved all of this stuff because he'd actually, he'd been a bit of a cowboy and he'd done some butchering. And so he knew what he was about when he was going in there with a knife, cutting this foam latex, peeling it back. I remember, I remember watching that and going, Ooh, here we go. Now we're going to see, we're going to see what, when he peels that over, I was just like, I don't know what I'm looking at. I can't tell what I'm seeing. We get the moment where, you know, uh, windows and, and Benning's, are putting stuff away in the storage room and the camera is positioned so that we can see the blanket that's sitting over top of the thing and it moves just a little bit. Isn't that suggestive horror at that point? And I think this film does work with suggestive horror, but it works with it in a way that's distinct from, say, um, cat, cat people. It's distinct from being like, you're not seeing it. No, you are. You're seeing it, but, but you can't quite figure out what you're seeing. I mean, aside from that blanket, that blanket is pure suggestive horror. And I love it. It's one of my favorite moments in the movie. I, re- I remember sitting, when, it, when, when I saw it at the Metro, I was sitting behind a guy who had clearly never seen the movie before. And when windows turned away and that blanket did its little shift, he just went, oh, God damn. You know, he, he was already, like, after the dog scene, you're like, this is, this is a mess. This is going to be bad. This is never going to get better. And when Bennings runs out into the snow, he turns and we're like, oh, he's, the thing has turned into a human. But then he raises his hands and there are all these weird, what are they? Claws? I don't know. Like, it's just, it's awful. There's a hand in there, but what is the rest of that? Um, and then he opens his mouth and makes this noise, this unearthly noise. I mean, give... Uh, that gives Mercedes McCambridge's voice uh, in The Exorcist as the demon a run for its money, right? This now, what am I looking at? Is it human? Is it a thing? And I think what we are getting in these sequences is a form of suggested horror uh, that relies on uh, intimidating imaginations of violence or a monster evoked through verbal descriptions, sound effects, or partial blocked and withheld vision. But here's the thing. I think it's a combination. Like we are looking directly at this thing, but it remains partial blocked and withheld because there is no final form. This monster has no final form. So there's a way in which even when we're looking directly at the thing, we're still not looking directly at the thing. And I think that's incredible. Um, and that brings me to the paranoia of the film. And most of the studies that are about this film talk about the claustrophobia being stuck in this Antarctic base and you can't get away. But the vital questions of human identity, as Ann Bilson puts it, that are raised from an alien that can imitate a human perfectly. Now, we haven't seen that happen yet. Bennings, not not a perfect imitation. But once we get to a perfect imitation, we're completely shocked at who it is. And I love how Gary says, he was my friend. And there's this, there's this sense in the original novella where they, they muse, they, they ask the question, you know, maybe if we sort of could have somehow made peace with this, this thing, it would have been better to at least have had the, um, the imitation because it still acted like that original person. The, the question of would it, would it have been better to have had them or to just have the absence you know, and this film doesn't really rely on that, that grief too much, but we get a little bit of that here. We get a little bit of it with Gary saying he was my friend, right? And that there is something absolutely hor- horrific about what this alien creature does. And it doesn't do it out of spite or anything. It's just doing it out of pure survival, but it's still utterly monstrous to us. Uh, and, you know, 
McCready has that that speech when they burn the uh, the the blood bags. You know, if if any of you are those things and come and attack me right now, and the camera passes over everybody in the camp, and we as the audience go, who is it? And it brings us back to dread. That's why this film is scary. That's how this film generates its scares. It also generates it through a sense of apocalyptic destiny that the outcome of this film will be terrible, right? There's, there's a sense about halfway through that not only might some of them not make it, but there's a really good chance that none of them might make it. And that might be necessary given what, what Blair learns in this wonderful little um, bit with software that didn't exist in the 1980s, <laughs> uh, where he you know, plays a form of, uh, of asteroids, I guess. <laughs> it looks like Atari's asteroids. Um, people always make fun of this. They're like, oh, that didn't actually exist. And where did he get this software from? Who cares? It's a cinematic device that's meant to tell the audience what the thing is doing. And in, in, in case you missed it, the movie is saying, this is what this alien does. It takes people over and becomes them. And again, Wilford Brimley sells this scene, takes, takes the subject matter absolutely seriously. Nobody's mugging for the camera. There's no camp here. And the computer program tells him, and this was the other thing about computers in the early 1980s. They were magic boxes for us in those days. And when stuff like this happened in film, you mostly just went, yeah, of course. Of course, the computer could tell you that if the intruder organism reaches civilized areas, the entire world population will be infected 27,000 hours from first contact. It's a few years. So what are we being told? Same thing we were told with Night of the Living Dead, only now we don't have zombies. I mean, that's what's so cool about this, right? You get bitten by a zombie, everybody can tell you're a zombie, right? You get bitten by the thing and it has enough time to change you. People can't tell. You can't even tell, right? Like poor Norris. Norris doesn't even know he's infected. He just keeps having stomach problems. Wilford Brimley responds in a way that is necessary for the plot, but it also gives us a sense of the desperation that these, that these semi-real people, I mean, nobody in, in fictional film is ever really real, but uh, he reacts in a way that makes sense. He's going to cut everyone off. Although the question emerges later on, once we find out that Blair becomes the thing later in the film... Was Blair the thing at this point and he was just shutting them off so that he could pick them off one by one? We don't know. We don't know. So many mysteries to this movie. But Blair's destruction of the camp's ability to leave, to contact the outer world, creates an even greater sense of paranoia and claustrophobia. And now we're at the point in the film where people are pointing fingers and then they're pointing guns. And the next thing you know, we're pointing flamethrowers and dynamite. <laughs> and uh, this is the moment at which Norris has died, uh, seemingly from natural causes, gets thrown in a fight into the corner, collapses, seems to be dead. McCready has been accused of being the thing um, and was like half frozen just a few moments before. So he's sort of sitting over in the corner with some sticks of dynamite. He's going to blow everybody up if they try to come at him. He's got a flamethrower pointed at everybody. That's how bad things have gotten. So not only do we have the body horror and uncertainty, the dread that results from the thing, but we also have a group dynamic that isn't particularly warm and fuzzy. It's paranoid. It's claustrophobic. No one trusts anyone else. Um, you know, McCready says this when he's, he's, he's musing into this tape recorder at one point. And then John Carpenter does another one of those, those moments where he goes, I want you to look over here, look over here, look over here. So he's got us paying attention, certainly, to Norris's situation as Doc Copper is trying to revive him, giving him CPR, and about to use the defibrillator. But then the camera 
gives us a shot of Clark, Clark's hand way in the foreground, the guy who works with the dogs way up in the foreground, and he's got a scalpel. And I got to tell you, this was not something you could see in pan and scan version. The, 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 the pan focused on McCready. So I didn't know that this was going on in this sequence until much later in my life. And I actually had to somebody had to have somebody show me that this is what was going on with this scene, but seeing it in widescreen that, you know, it's very clear. He grabs the scalpel, the scalpel gleams, the audience is going, Oh no, he's going to try and cut McCready. So we're paying attention to Clark when Copper goes to use the, def the defibrillator on Norris for a second time, raises the paddles, and the chest opens up in one of the best cinematic shocks of this movie, if not potentially horror history. His guts open up, Wah! and then bites Copper's arms off. We didn't expect this. This is why I say you could you could know it was the dog and you still wouldn't expect the dog to do what the dog did. You might even go, I bet you Norris is the thing. And you'd be like, what the hell's going to happen? But I, I was not prepared for a chest to open up and grow teeth and then bite off Copper's arms. That's bananas. That's absolutely insane. So we get cinematic shock here, a brief, tightly compressed type of fear, responding to a threatening object that ruptures the situation. My gosh, it certainly ruptures it. It ruptures his entire torso, and then something bursts out of it that has Norris's face, but not much else that's Norris, and it clings to the roof. And we're like, this is awful! And it just keeps getting worse and worse. It's like some form of demon baby, but it's got an old man's face. Ugh, it's so gross. It's like a fetus, but it's not. Um, and this is Rob Bottin and Mike Plug at their nastiest, maybe. Uh, not quite, because what's happening to the rest of Norris's body is still involving his face. So we've got Norris's face up on the weird fetus thing that's clinging to the ceiling. But what is happening to Norris is I don't want to say actual face, but let's just say other face. Well, it's torn itself clean off the head. There's one of those bubblegum moments where you just get this stretch, 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 snap, and then it lowers itself to the floor via, you know, these threads. Tongue comes out, grabs a, you know, chair leg, drags itself under a table, grows spider legs and weird eyeballs out of its head. And spiders are always gross to us, unless you're someone who actually works with bugs Spiders creep us out. It's why the alien that H.R. Heger uh, created for Alien has this sort of insectoid nature to it. Bugs creep us out. And this, this, well, and I know that, you know, insects aren't arachnids, but same diff. Creepy, creepy arachnid thing now scuttles outside the room. And again, we come back to the way that this film is built with a little bit of a, a tension relief. And also another moment where I think Carpenter is going, look over here look over here because Palmer the stoner says, you gotta be fucking kidding. It's one of my favorite lines of all time. I've always wanted to say it in a way that would be recorded forever. So I just did it now. Um, but it, it makes you laugh. At least it made me laugh. I remember going, ah, cause you want to laugh at that point because that last scene has been so absolutely insane, just insane moment after insane moment with this final, again, vernacular laconic finish kind of one-liners that the 80s would all be made of, and then McCready torches it. But Palmer can't be the thing. That was a funny line. Is the thing funny? So when we get to the next sequence, the blood test sequence, which, by the way, is almost word for word exactly what it was in the novella by uh, Campbell, we 
aren't really worried when McCready says that they're going to test Gary last and he's about to stick the hot needle to this, uh, this Petri dish with Palmer's blood on it. Cause Palmer's funny and the thing can't be funny. Can the thing be funny? Does the thing even know it's the thing before it gets attacked? We don't know. There's so many questions. I love this, this, this shot though, because what we, what we don't know as the audience is that what, um, Kurt Russell has had in the foreground is in his hand for the last two shots, two shots or something like that. If you go back and you take a look, there's a, there's a point at which it's no longer Kurt Russell's hand. It's the fake hand with the wah, uh, thing, the blood thing ready to burst out. And here again, cinematic shock, one of the greatest cinematic shocks, seriously. Okay. So the other one, maybe not, maybe that chest ripping open might not be one of the greatest ever. But I have seen the blood serum test on so many lists of scariest scenes ever. Now, it's not, it's not dread. It's not terror. It's not those other forms of horror. It sure as hell is some cinematic shock that wah, people always jump. And like I said, sitting behind that guy at the Metro, whoo, he went through the roof. He went through the roof at that point. We get another homage to Howard Hawks' version of the film as the Palmer thing with its head split open absolutely grotesque staggers out into the snow that uh, that mirrors a shot from uh, from Howard Hawks the thing uh, before McCready blows it up I think it's neat to, to watch this whole blood test sequence because you know if you watch the actor playing Knowles he looks super concerned that his blood test isn't going to go well almost like he he you know he isn't sure he isn't the thing like if Norris didn't know he wasn't the thing. And I'm not sure that the, the, the character could even know this. Then can he know? Can any of them know? Did Palmer know? Did Palmer know before it all went sideways? Would you know if you were the thing? That's a question that's raised in the novella. And then, of course, again, another one of those moments where the film lets us laugh a little bit as the actor playing Gary does a, as Anne Bilson puts it, a full Al Pacino starts out really quiet and gets up to the shouting kind of line. Um, if you gentlemen wouldn't mind, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this, right? And he shouts the rest of his line and we get a little bit of a laugh, a little bit of a release of the pressure. So this movie does that back and forth, but then it comes to its final act, its final apocalyptic act. And we are left with Nalls, Childs, Gary, and McCready and maybe Blair out there somewhere, but they don't know at this point. But what they know is that the thing has taken the generator. Initially, they think it's just blowing the generator and they can fix it, but then they find, nope, nope, no generator at all. And they need to blow everything up. They need to, they need to bring the camp down into the ice. They've discovered that the thing was building a ship to get out of there. And that's a little nod back to the novella, but we finally reach the point where they realize it's kind of like those old world war two movies where, you know, the soldiers are like, well, we're going to have to blow the bridge, but not all of us are going to make it. And we get a little bit of that here, a little bit of that bravura. And one by one, they too are picked off with the exception of McCready. The way that, that Gary goes has always seemed super gross to me. That is by the way, Rob Bottin's hand that is over Gary's mouth moving through that prosthetic, uh, that that's placed around the actor's face the impassive stare, which I think is one of those, those more creepy moments, unsettling moments of the thing for all of its body horror. 
Uh, seeing Wilford Brimley with no expression on his face suffocating Gary is terrible. And then the shot that follows with him having sh- pulled Gary's skin right up over his face as he drags him off screen. What is it that the thing does with biomass, we wonder? And then we find out and we see the super thing um, that is really, really huge at the very end of the film, right before, you know, McCready blasts it with some dynamite. Um, we get to the very end of the movie and out staggers Childs. And it's such a great way that he staggers in. You see some movement, but you're not sure what you're seeing initially. And you go, oh no, here we go again. But then you see it's Childs. And for me, I always liked Childs. I really like, I love Keith David as Childs. Um, his delivery of his lines, it always seems, he just seemed great. I, I was, you know, he's such a, that, that's why I say, I think he is a, he's, he's a parallel to McCready. Um, and, he staggers out, and I'm like, oh, good, Childs didn't die. But then the film tells me that I can't be sure the Childs didn't. As they say, you know, he said, how, how will we make it? And McCready says, maybe we shouldn't. And there's that implication that maybe one of them is the thing. And there's been a lot of digital ink spilled on this. I say digital ink because uh, I don't think there was a lot of ink spilled on this particular issue prior. I'm sure that there were people sitting around and talking about it. Do you think Childs is the thing? Do you think McCready is the thing? And there was some Dark Horse comics that speculated on these things further. But insofar as the film is concerned, I am absolutely certain we cannot know. I've seen them, by the way. So if you want to leave a comment, you know, and you're like, oh yeah, but have you seen the video where the guy, he breaks it all down and it's very convincing. Maybe it is to you. It's not convincing to me ultimately because this film, like a lot of, like Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth doesn't give you certainty about whether or not the fairy tale experiences of the little girl in the film are real. And likewise, I don't think we can get to the end of the thing and say with any certainty that either of these characters aren't or are the thing. The film ends with a wide shot of the camp and goes to that wonderful Ennio Morricone score that heartbeat pulse, doom, 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 doom. And I will never forget, I will never forget the frisson of, I don't know what to call it. It wasn't terror. Was it a form of shock that this movie was over? Like the end of Carpenter's Escape from New York was bleak. And I'd never seen an ending like that before. Because I mean, I was, I was quite young. So most of the movies that I had seen were like Star Wars. They had that sort of 80s feel to them, but I hadn't seen a lot of really serious adult 70s films. So a movie with this bleak of an ending, that was completely new to me. And for whatever reason, it clicked. It really worked for me. And as an adult, and I look back on it, I think about it analytically. Why, why do I like this so much? Because it's, to me, it's the only ending that really works. Campbell's original novella ended with we stopped the alien before it could do anything, and we're, most of us are still okay. All right. I guess if you got some pulp heroes, the McCready of, of John W. Campbell's novella was like almost, he was, he's described as being bronze. His hair is bronze, his face is bronze. And it's like, a, it's like a callback to one of the heroes of the pulp era, Doc Savage, who is utterly capable in every way. And he's more capable than you. No matter how smart you are, Doc Savage is smarter. And no matter how strong you are, Doc Savage is stronger. So there's nearly nothing that can threaten this man. You can't put Doc Savage into a horror movie and have it be a horror movie. It'd be an action film. Likewise, you can't take the McCready from Campbell's novella and put him in Carpenter's The Thing. The characters from The Thing from Another World prevailed. The film ended on a sort of haunting, look to the skies kind of note, like more might show up. 
There might be more creatures, but we've dealt with this one. Secure horror. Andrew Tudor's secure horror. What we have here is certainly paranoid, <laughs> paranoid horror. This movie ends with us not knowing if the monster is dead and potentially two of our favorite characters, if you were me, going, oh, I don't want either of them to be the thing, but they might be. One of them could be the thing. I don't know. That insecure horror, that paranoid horror here at the end absolutely works for a film that has been all about paranoia, claustrophobia, and uh, uh, disintegration of group politics throughout well, we've arrived at the 80s, and we move from here on into the 90s, away from utterly alien threats and uh, the body horror of the early 80s fascination with prosthetic effects over into the 90s. And uh, Wes Craven, who, you know, had been part of the, uh, the movement of horror, new horror in the 1970s, with his meta masterpiece, Scream, next time on Triple Bladed Sword. <laughs> <laughs>